This is exactly right. But I can take care of the people around me and take joy in the people around me and make my life a little happier and gentler for as many people as I can. That gives me great peace. So every time I find myself sort of coming back into that struggle, I have to remind myself of like, all right, here are the boundaries of reality. Here's what you can't do. What can you do? Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Love, Life, and Death with Mary Laura Philpott, author of Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, which is just out and is amazing. It was called A Masterwork by the New York Times and A Beautifully Wrought Ode to Life by the Washington Post. It was also named an Editor's Choice by the New York Times Book Review, an Indie Next Pick by Booksellers Nationwide, an Amazon Editor's Choice Selection, and a Best Book of the Spring or Most Anticipated of the Year by publishers ranging from the Washington Post to the Read with Jenna community on Today.com, among others. She is also the author of the national bestseller, I Miss You When I Blink, which was named one of NPR's favorite books of 2019 and a finalist for the Southern Book Prize. Mary Laura's writing has been featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and other publications. She is also a former bookseller and was an Emmy-winning co-host of A Word on Words, the literary interview program on Nashville Public Television. And guess what? She lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her family. Mary Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I love the mission of this show. We're aligned. We're aligned by the seeking to like understand, right? And be aware. And um, gosh, I have so I enjoyed your book so much. Um, oh, thank you. I want to I want to quote one of the many um, glowing reviews. Uh, the Washington Post also said. Bomb Shelter is the literary equivalent of a therapy session. Um, that <laughs> rang true with me. You know, at the end, I'm sitting in my office and I have like tears running down. I just tears are running down my cheeks at the end of the book. And it actually caught me, you know, I'm on this journey with you and so much, so much in that journey. And in the end, it just, it caught me. It just caught oh. me. So, well, I'm yeah. sorry that you cried, but I'm, I'm glad they were good. The good kind of tears. Yes. And I'm glad it had that impact on you. So, okay, where to start here? So this is this is a memoir. This is this is a uh, a real honest um, look, commentary, dive into your life. And how, did you? How did it come about that you decided to take this approach in this latest work? That's a good question. I, I think there would have been a version of this book that existed 
no matter what. I was beginning to write a few years ago about kind of this this sandwich generation stage of life where um, a lot of the things in my life that had been stable had begun to destabilize. Um, my parents were getting older. Some things had happened there that, that made me feel like the roles were beginning to reverse a little bit. And I knew that that would keep going. My children, as these children do, just kept getting bigger and older and closer to leaving the nest. And I couldn't freeze them in time. And that was giving me kind of a certain sort of anxiety. I myself, as just a human being, was turning middle-aged. I mean, you know, I was really feeling that I was in a new life phase. So I had begun to write some pieces and some pieces of pieces about those feelings and about this stage of life because I really wanted to capture and articulate, not just for myself, but for readers, what does it feel like to be in this in-between? Because mm-hmm. I like I like the idea of being able to give language to these chaotic times. I think it's it's not only soothing for me, but I think it's soothing for other people. And I get that from books. So I was headed in that direction. Mm-hmm. And then something happened that, that kicked it into a different gear and gave it a very specific timeline. And that is... Um, and this is not much of a spoiler, it happens right at the beginning of the book. But one morning at 4am, my husband and I woke up to this sound and we didn't know we didn't know what it was. In my sleep, I thought it was somebody banging on our front door. But it turned out to be the sound of our teenage son, the oldest of our two kids. Um, it was his body hitting the bathroom floor. He had he was having a seizure, had gotten up to get a glass of water and just boom, dropped cold. And so we were hearing him hit the floor again and again and again, which is just a horrible sound that I hope Mm-hmm. No one else ever has to hear. But I tell the story in Bomb Shelter at the beginning of finding him, calling 911, that that long, surreal day we spent in the hospital, mm-hmm. at the end of which, you know, this day starts with finding him on the floor. It ended with being sent home with a diagnosis of epilepsy, mm-hmm. which was just, it's such a before and after moment. Like, mm-hmm. this is a... This is the moment when I, as a parent, realize this thing has come for my child, mm-hmm. and I can't take it away. I can't take it on myself. I can't fix it. You can do mm-hmm. things to treat it, but you can't just magically make epilepsy go away. And that set the book into into a different kind of more urgent key, because mm-hmm. instead of just going, oh my gosh, I'm in this uncertain time. How will I get through it? I was right. thinking... All these normal, all these other things are going on, these uncertain, destabilizing things. And he was a sophomore at the time, a high school sophomore. So I was thinking, and I've got two years. I've got two years to make sure he's safe before he leaves home, which as you and all your listeners know, is like the impossible thing. There is no making sure somebody is safe. So, (laughs) you know, the journey you go on with me in this book is sort Mm -hmm. of me thinking that my job is get everybody safe and then realizing oh, I can't do that. So what can I do? How do we keep going in a, you know, happy, joyful, peaceful way? Right. Um, Also the paradox, the paradox of you, I I love uh, the personality test that you took um, that you referred to in the book and it confirmed what you already knew about yourself, which is um, that both the two, the big biggest traits were anxiety and cheerfulness. And you're like, yeah, I am going to let everyone know that we're all going to die and we need to talk about it. We need to think about it. But I'm also that person that's going to cheer for you the whole way to be like, let's make the best of it and like (laughs) kick some ass. Right. Like it's both. Yeah, (laughs) it's both. That was the funniest. Oh, man. I remember taking that test because I love anything that kind of like 
diagnoses or gives me a label for what I am. I love finding that certainty. I remember getting the answer because I wanted to know, what is my one main trait? And it was like, surprise, you are tied for two. And they're <laughs> anxiety and cheerfulness. And I was like, I have been seen. Yes, that is right. Yes, it's so great to be seen. And, you know, and when you have the complexity, you know, we only know who we are. And right. it's a feeling, but then to see it in words that, as you point out, several times in your writing, you can have these conflicting perspectives on life. And the other thing, I'm going to go to the end, and then we're going to go back because I just, I, I there were several things that I completely resonated with. Um, another, another point you come to towards the end, which is, you know, I've also figured out why I've had this obsession and worry about death. And that's because I'm so in love with life, you know, and actually, I think that's probably when I start, that's, that's probably when all the tears started coming. And I, um, <laughs> I, for years and years and years, had such an intense childhood into, gosh, it seems like almost college plus a, a that would come and go an intense fear of death, that, that idea of being just gone and missing yeah. everything and where do you go? And it, it was haunting. I mean, I was reading yeah. books on, I was reading books on death, you know, um, the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead, all these books trying to like understand all these different religious things, trying to understand. Yeah. And I know it's hard to, it's hard to express that feeling, but I get yeah. it. It's like the ultimate FOMO, the ultimate fear of missing out. Like, yeah. I, I yeah. don't want to not be here. I don't yeah. want anyone I love to not be here either. I want us to all stay and get to be mm -hmm. together forever. And of course, yes. that's yes. impossible, which is the thing we right. have to wrap our minds around. Exactly. So everyone listening, we are not going to bum you out and freak you out. We are here to express both the anxiety and the joy of life. Both of yes. it, right? All together. Yes. Okay, so something you said at the very, that you quoted at the very beginning of the book before I had read about your son and mm -hmm. the journey you guys were on. Um, it says, life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. And again, even before I got in the book, I just sat and reflected on that because we all, I think many of us live with this both denial, this very, um, what I would say, normal coping um, denial that anything really bad can happen in the moment and at the same time knowing it can. Like our mind has a really tough time knowing that at any moment things can change forever. And it's so yeah. out of our control. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I don't know about your brain, but my brain builds all sorts of little protective walls and hallways and like, no, don't look at that truth. That's too hard. That that line that you mentioned that I put at the beginning of the book comes from Joan Didion's memoir, The Year of Magical Thinking, which is about the 12 months after her husband passed away. And he, you know, in in her words, that is a literal line. I mean, he died at the dinner table. She sat down to dinner and that was it. Um, but I love it. First of all, it, it's one of those lines that can be specific to her life. And then, like you said, sort of apply to all of us. I love that little domestic detail, the dinner table. I mean, that's yeah. where life happens. That's where so much of bomb shelter happens. It's just in our home and in our everyday lives. And although, you know, in her, in her book and in the story she's telling, life as she knew it ended because her husband died. Life as I knew it ended, not because my son died, he is alive and well, um, 
life didn't end, but life as I knew it did. Mm -hmm. Nothing would be the same after. And so I had this sort of weird before and after, almost like, not to get woo-woo about it, but like a rebirth moment where it was like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, now I live in the world where this thing has happened. Right. What happened? How do I live in this world? Let's see. Right. And it's almost like for those, you know, for those of us who've gone through something um, traumatic, there's like, there is the before and the after. And it's almost looking back, a lot of times people describe it's like as before having to live with this truth or the, and this awareness of how mm-hmm. life can go. It's like I was kind of asleep. Like, you know, you just, it, it so, we don't want these things to happen, but yet they can have profound positive impacts on one's life as well. Yes. If you work through them, mm-hmm. which I needed to learn how to do, because my first response to, like you said, I, I had sort of been asleep or, or not, not as, not as I was after in terms of just being able to look around and realize, oh my gosh, stuff like this could be happening all the time. I started looking around and really seeing threats everywhere. I got to um I got to a point where I was actually really nervous to ride in the car. Like when our family would take road trips, I was having awful like sweaty anxiety sitting in the passenger seat visualizing car crashes because it was like I had seen my son go right up to the brink, just mm-hmm. tow that line between life and death and come back. And once I saw it, I realized that line was all around us all the time. And I I really sort of went the wrong way into being terrified for a while. And what I had to fight my way back to was remembering and reminding myself that, okay, yes, that line is always there. That's true. Also, everything else is always still here. All the all the wonderful, joyful, great things about being alive, you know, the the big things and also the little things. There are dogs. Dogs exist. I mean, th- we live in a world with dogs. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's how to hold those things. And like you said, the working through, mm-hmm. um, how did you? How did you? Oh, work gosh. <laughs> Some therapy. Yes. Uh, meditation. There's actually a chapter in Bomb Shelter where I, I, we needed a little comic relief. And so I, I put a dialogue between a guided meditation and my actual brain. So you, you, yes, you, you hear, did. Yeah, it's funny. You hear what yeah. the, uh, <laughs> what the meditation leader is saying and then what my brain is responding with. And it's a very chaotic chapter, but it is so true because that's how my brain works. Even when I feel like I'm doing meditation badly, which I never feel like I'm doing it well. Right. Um, there is something to the practice of slowing down mm-hmm. and making yourself still and trying, even if you can't really do it, to make your brain quiet mm-hmm. and to focus, to to intentionally aim your focus on what you're grateful for, what is good, you know, mm-hmm. the things you do need to get back in touch with. So practices like that were really helpful, mm-hmm. but also just time. I mean, that's what everybody always says. Time helps. Time time does help. You know, in the immediate weeks and months after this happened with my son, I remember just thinking, oh, I'm always going to be in a state of emergency. I live mm-hmm. in a state of emergency now. But time went on and I realized, oh, no, I'm not in a state of emergency. I'm in a world where emergencies can happen and also yeah. great things can happen. And I just yeah. need to expand my consciousness a little bit versus steering all the way into the dark side. Mm-hmm. Well, I think your message for all of us about focusing on the beauty 
and the joy and the adventure, that side of life as well is a very powerful, it's not only a coping mechanism and response, it's a, it's a outlook on life. It's a perspective. Yes, it is. And I've always had that. I mean, I can look back to childhood and see myself as a little kid who was wondering at every little amazing thing. And also, you know, like you, I read books about death. Yes. Um, and and this, the, the book begins with one of those times when you were just enjoying the beautiful beach and um, didn't even realize you were basically in a stingray um, maze, right? <laughs> like oh you gosh. were so immersed in yes. the beauty of the beach and the sand. Yeah, that was a that chapter was one that I didn't know where to put it in the book. I knew it belonged in this book because it was thematically tied in and I knew it was saying something important about what was to come, but I didn't know where to put it and I had a a, a really good friend read a very early draft and I I was like I got this one chapter I don't know what to do and she was like obviously Mm-hmm. It goes at the beginning. It sets the tone for everything. It says, once upon a time, you were this child who stood singing and dancing in the ocean while stingrays were whipping around your ankles and you didn't even know it until you got out. And then you lost it and you cried. It, it kind of, it's a mini version of the whole, everything that's to come. Yes, it is. Um Stingrays, dogs, you're mentioning, it's it's bringing me to another theme of your book, which is tied in as animals with wonderful names and different types of animals. And for everyone, <laughs> this book that I'm holding that um, is sitting behind Mary Laura, there's this beautiful turtle on the book. And I have to ask, is is this Frank or Fancy? That's, well, so we never knew. <laughs> I tell this story in the book how we have this turtle, this wild Eastern box turtle who lives in our yard and used to knock on our door. And when we were first getting to know him, there are other turtles too, but he's the one who comes back all the time. And we used to get confused as to whether we were seeing multiple different turtles or it was always the same one. And I don't know if there ever was a separate turtle, the one we were calling Fancy. I just don't know. But Frank has stuck around. I actually just saw him right before we got on this this call. Um, he's doing great. And that is him on the cover. I took that picture myself. And Aww. I love him. He has a couple of meaningful cameos in the book. <laughs> he does. And, he does. And I also just, I think his his image somehow, it's perfect for this book. You know, you look at it, you kind of go, oh, like yeah. he's cute and heartwarming. Yeah. But also he kind of looks like a little dinosaur, which is yeah. a little scary. And if you squint at him, he kind of looks like a grenade. Oh, you know what? You you're know? right. And they're under the bomb shelter. I right? see what you've done there. Yes. <laughs> um, this was another place that I really resonated with, especially when you had the close call of Frank and your daughter. And you guys thought Frank um, had an awful accident. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have uh, a pond in our back and uh, our kids growing up, we would have turtles in there and the kids love the turtles. They named the turtles and then the turtles would disappear and they'd be gone for the winter and we didn't know where they were. And then all of a sudden they would show up and then we would get another one when one was gone and then, oh my gosh, there's two. And so the turtles were a big part of our kids' lives growing up. And then one night, oh, so no. we one night it was dumping rain and we have a fairly long rock driveway. So we would all, we would take the cans down. So I said to the kids, Hey, why don't we just, you guys get in the back of the suburban and you hold on to it and we'll drive down. It was dumping. It was so dark. Couldn't see anything. So we did that. 
And I did hear something like running over something. No. The next morning, our kids are walking to middle school next door, uh, a couple doors down, and they run back and they're like, (gasps) Dad, 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 I think last night we ran over Thomas Jefferson. And we no. looked out there. And of course, um, so everyone, there is a pet um, in Mary Laura's family named Eleanor Roosevelt. And yes. so I ran over Thomas Jefferson. It I'm was so very sorry. sad. So I had a little trauma flashback when I thought Frank had met oh, the, the same fate. And I was sorry about that. Yeah. That's a that's a very specific little kind of PTSD there. Yes, yes. But I'm glad Ooh. Frank is still uh, is, still, is still with you. Yes. Um, Okay, back to um, com- complex because you really, you really, um, I think you really describe well the the managing and trying to negotiate complex emotions. So we've talked about anxiety and cheerfulness, and another another seemingly contradiction that you were trying to wrestle with seemed to me was being both angry at life and grateful. At the same yes. time. Yes. I, you know, I've talked about this a lot with writer friends recently. There seems to be a trend in, um, in the kinds of things you read in newspapers and magazines and online toward simplifying complex emotions into one very strong emotion. There's not a lot of room out there anymore for nuance Mm -hmm. and for things that are in contradiction, but also coexistence. And I feel like nuance and contradicting coexistence is all what the human brain is. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though it is not the trendy thing to do, I very much like to lean into teasing apart things in our emotional landscape that, that, might seem to be contradictory, but that actually make perfect sense that they go together. You know, I'm, I'm, I have these moments where I'm angry at life because I'm angry that the more I love the people in my life and the more people I get in my life to love, that means the more loss I'm being set up for, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. that makes me so mad at the same time. I mean, why am I mad? Cause I love these people and they're great. And I yeah. have so many people to love in my life. And that is awesome. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 I often, I know this quote can seem a little cliche at time, but I often think about it and talk about it with my clients that, you know, it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. I mean, yeah. When it comes down to it, right. And so many people, unfortunately, because of situations that have happened to them, protect themselves from ever being hurt again. And right. the that is that is kind of possible, but that comes at a cost too, right? There's no way yeah. we get out of this show without pain and loss. It's like, how are we, how are we going to lean into it is one way. Right. Yeah. Right. And how do we keep reminding ourselves that it's worth it, that we right. get so much out of it? out of life and out of having people in our lives and out of being vulnerable enough to, to love people mm-hmm. at full speed. Mm-hmm. When your dad, um, your parents, important people in your life, and they play a role in your book, of course, um, when your dad had the medical emergency, 
-hmm. and the surgery. And everyone, you know, her dad, this seemingly larger than life surgeon, military, I mean, just it seems like a very special individual. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, how long after your son first hit the floor that you were then dealing with that next traumatic situation of thinking about like, how is this going to go and, and feeling so out of control with the outcome? It, it was the other way around, actually. My, so my oh. dad, yeah, at the very beginning of that chapter where I talk about my dad, I say it was one year, it was almost a year to the date before everything changed. Oh, I but flipped of course, it. I flipped it. I, yeah. I wasn't measuring time that way yet. I only mm. measure that time now that way now in retrospect. Now I measure everything according to that point in time. But back then, of course, I didn't because it hadn't right. happened yet. The, that thing with my dad, where my dad had the emergency triple bypass and we didn't think he was going to make it through the night. And I was, you know, like threw my stuff in the car in Tennessee and was driving down to South Georgia trying to get there in time to see him alive. That happened um, like really almost a year to the day before what happened with my son. And what was interesting was that you know, if you've ever known anyone who's had bypass surgery, it's a long recovery. Um, and very often it's a, a full recovery and a great recovery, but it takes a while. So after that happened with my dad, it was that was in a December. We sort of went through the holidays where things were really touchy. And then we got into winter and he started to get a little bit better. And he and my mom were sleeping through the night again. And by spring, it was like, wow, we really dodged that bullet. Mm. Whew, good, you know good thing we're all safe and good and we took care of him just right and we fixed it and whoo, we're safe, you know? And then of course, just a matter of months later, this, this thing happens to my son and it brought back so much of what I had just been through and really kind of slapped me in this face with <laughs> this, this realization of my hubris and this mm -hmm. thought I had had that, oh boy, did I take care of that? I went down, took care of my parents, got dad all well, yep. you know, Good job, yeah. me. If I just take care of everybody right, it's all going to work out. I'll be safe, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Just stick them all in the bomb shelter, and everything's mm -hmm. going to be fine. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile that? Now, you know, first of all, mom of how? So, how old are the kids now? Yes, so I've got two two teenagers. One yeah. is nineteen, yeah, technically an adult, which is insane. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then one is my daughter is sixteen. Okay, so he's off and you, you know, that was the other thing. Um, our kids are similar and a little older. So I'm in that same era. And so, oh, you know, they're describing preparing for them for college and saying goodbye. It's so strange. Oh, Dismantling yeah. the household as a kid leaves is just talk about life as you know, it ending. I mean, life keeps going and gets better in some ways, but it, it's, you know, nothing, the, the configuration of the family never goes back. No, it changes. Weird. It, yeah. Yes. How did you come, how have you come to reconcile this complexity of protecting as much as you can and guiding as much as you can and letting go to yeah. whatever is? The only thing I know to do, and, and this has been helpful to me, and it's sort of a meditative thing, is to remind myself of the fact, even though it's a bummer of a fact, but it is a fact that we can't save everybody. We can't fix everybody. We can't love everybody hard enough to keep them safe forever. That's, you know, we're not immortal. <laughs> we, that's just not a thing. 
And although it's a bummer to, you know, kind of hit that realization again and again, every time I really like verbalize it, like, okay, I can't fix everything. It actually is sort of calming because I realize that where a lot of my pain came from and sometimes comes from is when I am struggling against reality. When I am in struggle against something that is unchangeable, mm-hmm. a fact, for example, like humans are mortal beings. When I struggle against that, I'm in pain because I cannot change it. When I accept it, oh, humans are mortal beings. Of course they are. I can't keep everybody alive forever, but I can take care of the people around me and take joy in the people around me and make my life a little happier and gentler for as many people as I can. I can do that. Mm-hmm. That gives me great peace. So every time I find myself sort of coming back into that struggle, I have mm-hmm. to remind myself of like, all right, here are the boundaries of reality. Here's mm-hmm. what you can't do. What can you do? And that reminds me, I mean, you're, you just translated, um, the wisdom of the Dalai Lama, really, which is, <laughs> which I'm, I'm serious, which is um, pain and suffering generally comes from not accepting what is. Yeah. Struggle is what hurts. Yeah. And if we can accept what is, the mm-hmm. Dalai Lama has said things like, we can be okay even if our life situation is not okay. Yep. I mean, it's so... It's not easy. Um, it's and these not are easy. so aspirational. Right. And it's an iterative thing. Like I find my way there and I'm like, whoo, that feels better. And then, you know, it's just a matter of time before I sort of slide mm-hmm. back to where I was and I have mm-hmm. to crawl my way back to wait, wait, yeah. wait. I know how to do this. <laughs> one of the one of the things that I also really um appreciated about your book, and it's really you, is it's it's all about awareness. Like you are constantly, and I, and I, I suspect this is how you have always been, um, and are only more so over time, is someone who's just really aware of what's going on around you, what's going on in you, and trying to think it through. Which I know can be really frustrating at night when the thoughts don't leave, <laughs> or driving right. down the road, or in the and meditation. Right. I totally get that, and. Um, you know, there's a quote that you said uh, from your describing yourself when you were younger. The more I saw and heard of the real world, the more I came to suspect that there was sadness everywhere. And I would, and if I was going to live in this world, I should understand its scale and reach. Like you've always seemed like have been someone who's needing, wanting to understand the complexities. Yeah, I've I've never been. Um... I've never been really good at sustaining the look away strategy. Like I know they're like, if you don't look at this, it can't hurt you. I'm right. always like, oh, I gotta look at it. You know, like I my husband used to make fun of me because I would read <laughs> I would read these shows. I mean, read these books or watch these shows where like the mother dies and I would be sobbing and he would go, Why are you watching it? It makes you feel bad. You're crying. And I think like, I just I just need to know. Okay. <laughs> I just yeah. I have to witness it. And then I'll, I'll be okay. It is mm. almost, you know, it's a little bit of that thing our, our human brains do where they're like, it's a protective mechanism. Like if you know 
the depths of every horror, then you can be prepared. Then nothing can, you know, surprise you and you will always know what to do. Our brains think that's a protective strategy and it kind of is up to a point, but then it mm-hmm. also can get a little out of control. Yes. Yes. Um, your book also, since it's, it's, it's real time, you also talk about COVID. And so yeah. when, when, where were you in your process when lockdown happened? Stupid COVID snuck into this book. I was yes. determined to leave it out. And then I was like, I, it's, it's like crashing. It crashed this party. So this book begins in past tense. It's very much like this thing happened a few years ago. Here's where we begin. And I, as I was writing, the verb tenses were sort of coming together. So it ends in present tense in the spring of 2021. And I'm, you know, like I literally say, I'm putting my pencil down now. Here's where we are. Here's what's going on. So there was no way to avoid that as I was getting toward the end of the book and that toward the end of this encapsulated two-year time period that I wanted to sort of hold as a bubble, the pandemic happened. So Mm -hmm. I had to address it. You know, I don't, I feel like this is not a pandemic book, really. Like it doesn't take up that much room, but it is there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of, for me, one of the, it's sort of absurd to say there are any blessings in a pandemic because really we don't ever want a pandemic. But mm-hmm. in terms of my working life, I had longer, more uninterrupted stretches of work time, as many people did during the pandemic than I'd ever had before. Um, the paperback of, of my last book, I Miss You When I Blink came out in the spring of 2020. So normally I might've been out and about promoting mm-hmm. that and doing various things, but that that was all immediately shut down. Um, I wasn't traveling. I wasn't doing, you know, I used to think of myself as like doing my best work when I multitask. And so I was always juggling multiple jobs. And so when the pandemic hit and I was, I had started this book, I was kind of well into it. Suddenly I was like, I have nothing to do but this, mm-hmm. this, this project and feeding and watering the people in my home and my animals, that's it. Mm-hmm. So it was a more immersive writing process than I've ever had before. And I learned about myself that I do not do my best work when I multitask. I was mm-hmm. wrong. This, right. <laughs> this right. is, I think, a much better book because I stayed I stayed immersed in the world of this book. You know, I wasn't leaving it and going out to reality and then coming back. I, I really was just in it all day, every day. You know, and that's the, it's, it's so interesting, the research on multitasking, because most people believe yep. multitasking is highly efficient and more focused, you know, more efficient than focusing on one thing. And like the vast majority of the research says, no, it's not like you get right. less done. You're distracted. You don't right. finish that. Yeah, it's funny. We have the facts to tell <laughs> us that that, does, that, that right. doesn't work. And yet yeah. our, our overconfident brains are always right. like, oh, yeah, you can. Other people, maybe not, but you, yeah, you yeah. can do it. Yeah, man, right. I got so much done today. Oh, so many things. <laughs> yeah. I did one eighth of 10 things. <laughs> exactly. So there is, um, so everyone, there's the chapters are all so um, digestible. And just when you're like getting into one, one's winding down, and then another one starts, which I really appreciate, which the way my brain works. And so one one that really comes to mind and that so many of us I know can identify with is the screaming parent in the college quad, the screaming oh, mom. Yes. And yes. Um, what I want to say about that and ask you about is, so first of all, you did such a nice job of 
describing all of the potential reasons this mom is screaming at her prospective college student uh, on, on the college visit uh, of everything from, all right, yeah, she's a mean, nasty, bratty person to, oh my God, she's having such a bad day. She's worked so hard to get her daughter to sort of step into this point and she isn't. All the different variables that I completely resonated with and really about trying to say to people and yourself, like, we don't know what's going on for someone else. We got to like try not to judge too harshly and be kind to others and be kind to ourselves when we end up being that person for that moment. Oh my God, right? Like, how many times have I been somebody's cautionary tale? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's it, that, that story, which is a real story, like that actually happened. Mm-hmm. I, I took my son on a college tour and the admissions director told us this cautionary tale about, oh, you wouldn't believe this. This, I, you know, We took this family on a tour and the mom and daughter got separated from the rest and we came back and they were having a screaming match. Oh my gosh, can you believe it? And all the people in our tour group were like, oh, no. As if they were shocked. And I was like, "You really? You can't imagine a parent and a teenager during a high-pressure moment having a screaming match? How weak is your imagination? But the rest of that chapter kind of becomes fiction, and it becomes me telling a story of of beginning that morning in the hotel room when the mother and the daughter wake up, what was going on in their Mm -hmm. lives. And that I come back again and again in Bomb Shelter, and I think in a lot of my writing lately, to the idea of empathy and to the idea that we don't... We all walk around thinking we know what everyone else is thinking and thinking we understand everyone else's motivations. And most of the time we don't. Mm-hmm. And we've got to remember that. Also, it makes, you know, it makes me much happier if I can imagine a more empathetic scenario mm-hmm. than if I walk around imagining, you know, everyone is terrible. <laughs> you know. Right. Everyone right. is bad and mean and that's why they're all doing the things they do. That, you know, Glass half empty, half full. Like I'd rather believe everyone's doing their best, but sometimes they make mistakes and sometimes they have weak moments and sometimes they're evolving from one version of themselves to the next and we just caught them in transition. So true. And we have this, I think this human nature thing that when we see other people losing it or not having their best performance, so to speak, you know, there's a part in us that just like, oh, well... I'm doing that better. At least I feel. Uh, <laughs> At least I got, I'm not screaming on the quad. I got my stuff together. You know, like right. it's just that I think your point. Like we really have to try to take a step back and realize everyone is doing the best they can, and um, nothing is simple. Nothing is simple. No, Mm-mm. nothing. And there's so many. There's I had kind of dorky English major fun with this and writing the book, taking a lot of moments where. I would be describing something going on in a scene and I would take just a second and pull back and say, if you looked at this through the window, this is what you would think was happening. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. It was mm-hmm. something completely different. And I feel like that's all of us walking around looking at each other through windows going, oh, yeah, I know exactly what's happening there. And mm-hmm. probably being wrong so much more than we know. Exactly. Another parenting moment which you are brave enough to write about, which I resonated with, was um, when you and your son got into it about school and grades. And, you know, you talk about, of course, that, that, that total dilemma we all have of like trying to focus on effort and not grades, but yet grades do matter when you're trying to get into college and all that stuff. Right. And, and then saying what I found, fa- what I found myself saying to um, my son and getting the same response 
when he was back in high school in some instances it's like it's like you don't even care like you're not even showing that you care and Mm -hmm. when you were your son responded you know i care and then went up and you know slammed his door i just felt that too because this is for everyone listening so much of the time our kids don't look like they care and that's where Mm -hmm. we go and particularly in these growing up as a teenager in the pandemic and the global issues we're asking them to care about like math and essays when their heads might be in much other things. And so I guess it's a tale for all. I mean, it's, it's a message for all of us to try to maybe avoid using the, you don't care word, um, which can be really hurtful to them. Oh, hurtful to anybody. To yeah. say to anybody, you don't care. What a terrible thing to say. To be yeah. like, you know, I care about the world, but you're walking around callously not caring. It's an awful yeah. thing to say. And like you said, it comes up in fights between human beings all the time. It's the easiest thing to lob at somebody. You don't care. Mm-hmm. And it's so hurtful. And I carried that, you know, the reason I told that story in the book is because it was the guilt. Mm-hmm. I carried part of my my journey through this book in terms of finding my way back to joy and peace and some level of equilibrium was letting go of guilt. And I was carrying guilt about that fight and about, you know, saying you don't care it because for a couple of reasons, one, because I just regretted it. And I was sorry that I yelled at my kid and I'm not a mm-hmm. yelling person, but look, there I was, I was woman on the quad, but in my right. own house. Right. And then also because that fight happened the night before we woke up and found him unconscious on the floor. So you know, I carried around this feeling of I upset him. I stressed him out. Stress causes seizures. I did this. It was my fault. And so for months and months, I walked around just obsessing over that night thinking, what if I, what if I had just walked away? What if I had not been a nagging mom? What, you know, I've read the articles mm-hmm. that say, don't nag them about homework. And I, I never nag about homework, but I did. And why did I do it that one time? And, yeah, you know, basically had to take myself through the same empathetic process that I had for the woman on the quad. Mm-hmm. You just start, you just touched on this. Um, if you can expand, how did this book change you going through the process of writing this memoir? Well, going through the process of living the stuff in it probably changed me more, but I will say there are some things that I learned about myself. I mean, for one thing, I learned I'm not a good multitasker. But I also, um, I very often start an essay, and I think of the chapters in this book as essays, but really they're just memoir chapters. But I very often will start a piece thinking I know where it's going to land. Like, here I go, I'm going to tell you this story about this thing that happened, because I'm going to make the following point. And as I tell the story, and as I work through each scene in that story and really drilling down each scene to its emotional core so that I'm choosing the right emotional vocabulary, I realize, oh, wait, I feel differently about this than I thought I did. <laughs> I mm. sometimes surprise myself about where I land. Um, so there are all sorts of, of little things I discovered that I that I hadn't really verbalized, oh, this is what I was thinking. Like I, I tell a story toward the end of Bomb Shelter about uh, losing a friend of mine, a, not a close, close, like first inner circle friend, maybe one or two circles out, um, but someone I, I liked a lot and I was in regular, if not frequent touch with. And she 
passed away. And after she died, I thought, I just had this awful feeling as of, I should have been checking on her more. Why Mm -hmm. did I not, you know, how did I let that happen? And I realized one of the things that I've been struggling with my whole, my whole life, but especially since I've had children is this hubristic idea that I let things happen. Mm. That the things, the bad things that happen in the world happen because I wasn't paying attention, which is, I mean, of course that's possible that something bad could happen when you're not paying attention. But the level, the degree to which my mind goes there when yeah. anything bad happens is not healthy and is not correct. And I, and I really kind of worked through that mm-hmm. in the writing of this book as well, which yeah. is one reason I think it lands in such a, a feel good place is mm-hmm. because I, I did the work of getting to understand, no, that is not true. You're not God. You're not some sort of superhero who, you know, it's up to you whether the planes stay in the air or not. That's not real. And this is, this is the really, um, like therapeutic nature that again, so many of their viewers spoke of in different words. Um, is that like by you going through your process and sharing it with all of us, we get to go through it um, try to understand it. And, and there's opportunities for personal healing by reading your story and going on this journey with you. Well, that's kind of you to say, and I, I'm delighted if that is the case. There have been many books that have done that mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. What do you hope people get from this book? I, on a, I Well, on a couple of different levels, I hope different things. So on one level, you know, as someone... There are a lot of things you can do with the story. You can tell it at a party. You can tell it to your friends. You can say it on the radio. But if you're going to go to the trouble to putting, you know, all the effort in to actually publish a book, I want people to feel, this may sound crass, but I want them to feel like they got their money's worth. I want them to feel like it was a good story. It engaged all their emotions. They laughed. They cried. They got to the end and said, I am glad I read that and I want to go tell five of my friends to read it. I want to give people a good story. I think in the same way that, you know, a showrunner who runs a TV show wants to give people a good story. So I hope I have accomplished that on just mm-hmm. a craft and yes. entertainment level. Um, but beyond that, I think I think I would go back to what you just said, which is that I hope people put it down feeling like they've had a real moment of human connection mm-hmm. and that maybe they've got some words. Maybe they get that piece that comes with having vocabulary for thoughts that have been driving you nuts, but you just haven't really sorted quite out yet. You don't have the words for yet. Hopefully I can be mm-hmm. sort of a shortcut mm-hmm. to some words for those feelings. Um, yeah. And people say a lot, and this is really sweet, but th- they'll say after they read this book, they'll direct message me on you know Twitter or Instagram or whatever and say, I feel like you're my friend. And <laughs> and they'll, sometimes they'll apologize. They're like, I'm sorry. I know that's cheesy to say, I feel like you're my friend. And I love it because it means this book has done one of the things I I want it to do. I want it to connect and I want it to feel, I want it to give people relief from loneliness. Because a lot of times when we Mm -hmm. have some sort of emotional pain or we're going through something and we think no one else can understand, then we feel lonely and loneliness compounds everything. So if you feel a connection to it and it, and it relieves that loneliness, great. In my uh, humble opinion, you have checked all of those uh, boxes and intentions that you set out to. So everyone, everyone, you you have to read this beautifully um, pinkish peaches. What color is? What do we? Is this pink? It's like Uh, a really nice color. It's It's like not quite pink. 
No, it's an extremely vivid coral almost. But the funny yes. thing about it is I was such a stickler about this color with the de- the design team. When they were putting the cover together, I was like, wait, dial the pink up a little. Dial- nope, nope, a little warmer. But this book cover comes out a different color in every photo. It catches light in a really funny way. So if you go look at it online, like look where people have posted pictures of the book. In some pictures, it looks like fuchsia. And in some, it looks red. And in some, it looks orange. I don't know the magic of this color, but I love it. It's intriguing. And of course, when you guys do see it, the font, um, the yellow font of some of the text is contrasted beautifully with Frank the turtle's coloring on his shell and his neck. It's just all, it all just goes together. (laughs) Okay, Mary Laura, it is time for the parent footprint moment question that you have been waiting for. Okay, here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or an awareness even of your parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids' life, and those you love? Okay. I love this question. And I, and of course, I know that you ask this question, so I've been thinking about it. And I think what I want to get at is something that you were talking about earlier when we were talking about how it's so terrible to say to a kid, you don't care. It's so terrible to say that to anybody. Um, and I think what we mean sometimes when we lob that at somebody is you don't understand. Like you're not understanding me and I'm not understanding you. And I forget sometimes that that is just built into the generational difference between parents and kids. Sometimes I get, you know, impatient and frustrated that I'm like, how can you not understand what I have done for you? Why are you being ungrateful? And then I think back to myself as a teenager. I'm like, did I understand? No, I did not. Hmm. So my story that I want to tell to illustrate this, and this is a story that I tell in Bomb Shelter, and it's how the book got its title. I said a few years ago, my dad called to say, hey, can you order this book for me? I used to work for a bookstore. And so he, he made a big deal about ordering his books from indie bookstores because he knew that was cool. And he, and I was like, yeah, what book is it? And he said, it's called Raven Rock. And it's by Garrett M. Graff. And it's about the secret underground nuclear bunkers that the government maintained for decades. And I was like, oh, that is so up your alley. Yes, let me order that for you. And he was like, great, thanks. Because you know, it reminds me of when I worked there. And I was like, wait, when you worked where? And he said, "In at Raven Rock. And I said, wait, hold, hold on, Dad. You are telling me you worked in one of the government's secret underground nuclear bunkers? Oh, yeah. Remember when you were little? You worked there when I was alive? Yeah. I mean, we had this like who's on first conversation of like, what are you mm-hmm. telling me? This is what I'm telling me. What? Are you, what? And he had never mentioned this to me once in all all my life. And I was in my early 40s when we had this conversation. And this was his way of just kind of casually dropping into conversation. Oh, yeah, this is what I used to do when you were little. I knew he, I mean, he's a doctor. He's always been a doctor. I knew he was in the army and did something military-ish when we lived outside (laughs) DC, but Mm -hmm. I was a toddler. So what was I caring about in life? Yeah, You know, toddler things. I did not know that when my dad walked out the door every morning to go to work, then on any given day, he might be going to do a drill for the end of the world. He might be going to practice going down into the bunker to keep the president alive after a nuclear bomb, in which case my mom and my baby brother and I all would have been just vaporized and my dad would be in the bunker. Learning that as an adult really kind of First of all, made me understand a lot about my dad, mm-hmm. but also made me made me think about 
how many burdens parents carry that their children have no idea of yeah, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Like, right. you can only really begin to understand your parents when you become an adult. You, you, you're not peers. You cannot understand them when you are little. And it, you know, be, reminding myself of that and really absorbing that, I think has made me a little bit, a little bit better as a parent because I remind myself it works the other way too. Although I have been a teenager, I am not always understanding mm-hmm. my teenagers. I am often saying things like, why don't you care? That are yeah. not fair to say yeah. because I have forgotten or have lost touch with what it, the burdens that they carry at that age. That is such an important message uh, for us to hear. And um, it is fascinating how we can be these growing teenagers with certain thoughts and beliefs about the world and our own parents. And then they end up in some lockbox. And when we're on the other side of that, it's like, what were they thinking? How could you guys do this? Why would you be staying out late and not calling us? You know, like, well, I think we have an idea. We know why, right? Yeah. So that's really important. And also the burden, right? Just to have respect and compassion for the burden because we, we always just see people's behavior and judge people by their behavior. And there are scripts and stories and narratives behind everyone's behavior, right? That led Mm -hmm. to that. Thank you for that, that, that moment, those moments. Yeah. Well, thank you for the, I love that question. It's great. So Mary Lord, tell, tell everyone where they can find obviously your book, um, your tour. You, I I was also mentioned you are just back on, you've been on tour, right? Uh, The world's open and you are out there again. I spent April going from Airport to airport, and wow, I mm-hmm. had not realized just <laughs> – I really kind of became a hermit yeah. in the pandemic. And then I went out there, and I was like, oh, I forgot what this is like. <laughs> I had to sort of rebuild my stamina. That was the big like back-to-back-to-back portion of my tour, but it kind of goes on all throughout the year. I've got events here and there. They're all listed on my website, which is just my name, MaryLauraPhilpot.com. Also on my website, you can sign up for my newsletter, which I send maybe once a month, occasionally twice a month, but it's it's short, it's quick. It's always got a book recommendation, usually a link to some good song because I live in Nashville. Um, other book news is in there. I'm on Instagram a good bit. I'm on Twitter a good bit. I have Facebook. I check it occasionally. That's where I am. Nice. You're in all those places, um, and you are easy to find. And your website, everyone, is, it's, it, first of all, it's beautiful, it's colorful, and it has all the great reviews, all the information that you need to know to follow Mary Laura. Thank you so much. Um, and thank, thank you for this book I'm holding. Everyone, go out and get this book. I promise you, you will enjoy it, um, and you will laugh, and you will likely cry and you will go away being a better person. Uh, so I, I just that. really, I just really enjoyed it and thank you for it. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Send this show to anyone and everyone you think will benefit. And we so enjoy you being a part of our community Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave?
This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.